Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Tomorrow is the big day, at least allegedly, that the Tigers open their home uh, baseball season uh, against the Boston Red Sox, and we are planning, rain or shine really, to have our special opening day show at the Majestic Cafe from 9 to noon tomorrow uh, in Midtown Detroit. Join me and Delisi, Bill Shea from Cranes, retired Tigers beat reporter Tom Gage, and a host of other special guests for the live broadcast. You can come hang out with us at the Majestic or just listen along on the radio. We're also going to play your personal walk-up songs. What would your walk-up song be if you were a Tigers batter? So tell us what it would be at WDET.org and uh, we'll play it tomorrow during the show. I have asked my children what their walk-up songs will be, and uh, theirs will be included among the fun tomorrow. You can come down, uh, hang out with us, and then leave early for the game, beat the traffic, and uh, get there in time for first pitch. Uh, again, assuming that all this happens, I mean, the weather right now really threatens to, to push opening day to another space. So uh, opening day is one of my favorite days of the year. That will be one of my favorite shows of the year. I would love for you to come out and join us. And of course, if you can't, to uh, Listen along. Uh, a little later in the show, we are going to talk about the Bluebird Inn, the famous Bluebird Inn here in Detroit, made famous by people like Miles Davis and John Coltrane, who played there. Uh, there's an effort underway to reconstruct the stage of the Bluebird Inn. We're going to talk about that a little later. But first, we are going to start the show on uh, a more somber note. This week, horrific images emerged from a rebel stronghold in Syria that was bombed with toxic gas. It killed civilians through an excruciating and slow process of asphyxiation. The pictures and videos surfaced of children gasping for air, foaming at the mouth, crying and dying. Uh, they're disturbing images, to say the least, and they're the kind of things that you would rather not see and that it's easier to turn away from, but that's inhuman, right? That's not the way that we're supposed to respond to these things because they are unfathomable, and yet they did happen. And it's highly suspected that Syrian President Bashar al-Assad ordered the attack on his own people. Why did he do that? And what can the Western world do to prevent it from happening again? This is not a new discussion in this country or in the world. Assad has many times used uh, chemical weapons uh, to pursue his uh, aims of consolidating or defending the power that he has there in Syria. The United Nations has long struggled with what its role is in trying to prevent that from happening. And the United States, of course, has struggled with that role. Uh, president Barack Obama, uh, in his uh, presidential, his second presidential term, talked about a red line uh, being drawn uh, in the sand for Assad not to cross to be using chemical weapons again. He went ahead and did it anyway, and the response from this country was pretty much not very much at all. Uh, there was no military uh, strike taken against the Assad regime for that. Donald Trump, uh, as a candidate, made much of the idea that we were not too serious enough about dealing with Syria. Now that he's president, 
he is still uh, saying that the Obama administration didn't handle this the right way. Joining me now to talk about what President Trump ought to be saying or doing, what the United States ought to be saying or doing about this, is Saeed Khan, an expert in Middle and Near East history and politics, a lecturer at Wayne State University. Saeed, welcome to Detroit Today. Stephen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let, let's pick up where I left off there in the intro. Uh, President Trump, now President Trump, uh, is is in control at this point. And this is no longer uh, a subject of criticism for him. It's a subject of policymaking and action. Now, what we saw from him this week was a lot of blaming. He spent a lot of time in his statement talking about the failures of the Obama administration and linking that to this attack. I think the question, uh, the, the, the bigger question is, what are the things that President Trump, if he wanted to take this seriously, if he wanted to uh, prevent uh, Assad from doing this in the future, what could he do? What's the role that the United States ought to be playing here uh, and and how do we pivot toward it? Well, Stephen, there's uh, there's two things there. One is what the United States ought to do and what the United States can or is willing to do. There's really three different arenas that uh, now President Trump has to contend with. One is uh, what is American foreign policy in the Middle East? Connected very heavily with that is what is America's foreign policy with Russia, which is, of course, a major player in Syria right now and will be uh, for the long run, uh, particularly with it uh, regarding uh, Bashar al-Assad as uh, Moscow's guy in Damascus. And the third element of this, of course, is American domestic politics. And we see here that despite the fact that this is a humanitarian catastrophe of of quite a a large measure, that uh, those who are uh, in Washington particularly are still looking at this primarily, if not exclusively, through the lens of politics, Mm -hmm. uh, mentioning uh, and invoking the name of the Obama administration of uh, uh, placing the blame on his feet, uh, as well as some, of course, saying that the blame goes even farther back to uh, the George W. Bush uh, administration, uh, actions taken in Iraq, which then is uh, setting the first domino, if you will, of, uh, of what's going on. But right now, um, as uh, for the last 70 days, uh, we have a new president who really needs to table the domestic political agenda and focus on the foreign policy. Now, what the United States can do is going to be limited depending on where it wants to do it. In the United Nations, for example, one of two things is going to happen. Either there is going to be a resolution which is passed to uh, get UN authorization for some action, but given the fact that Russia is one of the five permanent members of the UN Security Council, it is uh, almost inevitable that it will block uh, any resolution which is considered so uh, very harsh. That means that there could be a watered-down resolution which is not going to have any teeth behind it. So the UN really is not going to be one of those arenas. The next uh, arena would be NATO. Does this fall under the auspices of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization? Uh, it's very difficult to see how that plays uh, um, into uh, what is the scope of that. And even if it did, uh, it doesn't seem as though the president has uh, a very charitable view when it comes to NATO's mandate sure. anyways. So that essentially brings us to the third uh, place, which is unilateral action. And I thought it was quite interesting that the now UN, uh, uh, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, former governor of South Carolina, Nikki Haley, has said that the UN, uh, the United States, uh, rather, does uh, reserve the right and may have to act alone or unilaterally. So that is a trial balloon that has been uh, pushed out there. At the same time, 
we have an awful lot of people within the administration saying different things. Yes. Uh, Vice President Mike Pence, of course, is saying that all options are on the table, whatever that means. Uh, uh, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley says that uh, the U.N. Uh, the U.S. may uh, act alone. And uh, Secretary of State Tillerson has given also a very uh, uh, kind of muddled uh, response. Just last week, along with Nikki Haley, they both said that uh, it is not part of current uh, the current administration's policy to uh, target Assad. And in fact, uh, I think Haley said that uh, the uh, decision about whether Assad stays or goes should remain with the Syrian people. Uh, rather ironic, given the fact that it's not really a democracy. Right. Uh, so we're really not sure then whose advice uh, President Trump is going to take as far as a line of thinking. When it comes to military actions, uh, the United States certainly could take military action if it wanted to, if it considered this to be a, its national security interest, but it will always be buffeted by uh, recriminations from Russia. Yeah. I mean, the, part of the problem here is that the Russians are are actively trying to prop up the Assad regime. And if we were to go and strike at that regime, that brings us into direct conflict with Russia, which I, I, you know, for any number of reasons would be problematic right now, I would think. Absolutely. I mean, right now, uh, we don't know what is exactly the involvement with uh, President Trump and uh, the Russian administration, particularly Vladimir Putin, what kind of commercial and other political and economic uh, relations they have. Is that uh, going to be considered a conflict of interest or will that compromise American foreign policy? We simply do not know uh, that right now. Uh, that may be revealed in the next few weeks with various investigations. But again, uh, it's an open question. At the same time, I think it's important to then also consider that when it comes to American action in Syria, uh, Former President Obama had said very emphatically that Assad must go, but there was no action taken in that direction. And for several reasons that America would not be able to unilaterally call for that kind of regime change. At the same time, I don't think that it's ever going to be feasible for a a power-sharing arrangement to occur in Syria. And given the fact that the Syrian opposition now is probably sufficiently radicalized to yeah. the point that there really is no moderate voice and element within that, uh, that uh, that is also off the table. What is not off the table and what I think is a very viable option, something where the Russians and the Americans can agree, is that Assad should go and have somebody else from within his junta take over. Uh, that would probably be the w least worst uh, scenario. Wow! Wow! I mean, that's and that's not terribly optimistic. I wouldn't think uh, it's but. not terribly optimistic, <laughs> but at the same time, Stephen, it's also not that impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Saeed Khan, an expert in Middle and Near East history and politics. He's a lecturer at Wayne State University. We are talking about this week's gas attack in Syria. Uh, what does that portend for the United States' uh, involvement in that region, not just in Syria, but in the Middle East generally? What should President Donald Trump be doing to prevent these kinds of things from happening. Do you think that President Obama and President George W. Bush before him, frankly, uh, are bear responsibility for the current situation in Syria, given the actions that they took or did not take when they were president? Also, uh, give us a call and talk about the photos and the, the, the other images that we have seen from Syria this week. I was deeply disturbed 
by them. I was especially disturbed by the pictures and videos of children who were killed uh, by this attack. I think that's always a very, very shocking and difficult thing to process. It's a really difficult thing, I think, to process if you have children as well. What do you tell them about uh, about these kinds of images, which they, of course, in our uh, ever-present media society, uh, they are likely to come across to talk about how you deal with these kinds of really, really disturbing news images and uh, bits of information with your kids. How do you deal with them yourself? Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number to join the conversation. Talk about what you would do in Syria. Talk about what your reaction is to the things that we've seen there this week. Again, 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will try to work your comments into the conversation. Uh, Saeed, I want to get your reaction to what I was just talking about there. These images are unbelievable, and uh, it's not as if we live in a world where we don't sometimes come across disturbing images like this. I'm thinking uh, specifically of the Syrian boy uh, who was dead on a beach whose image uh, seemed to prick the American conscience, uh, I guess that was last year, I'm not sure, maybe the year before. Um, this this kind of uh, sort of attention, though, does get, it does get us riled up, and it does get us to focus, at least for a small period of time, on things that, that the rest of the world, I feel like, sometimes is a little more focused on because it's in their backyards. Uh, but I want to get your reaction to what we saw and and what this you know what what this is like for the people who live in this country that has been under this unbelievable uh, siege from the war for so long. Well, I mean, uh, I I don't know anybody uh, except perhaps the most heartless who is not going to be affected by these pictures, first of all. Uh, And especially, as you said rightly, when it's uh, images of children uh, and and social media is now uh, saturated uh, with these images. And and it's not just one or two images that are simply being recycled. There's new images that, that seem to be coming out uh, at, at a fairly frequent pace. Uh, I think one of the uh, very important things to, to recognize uh, regarding this, and this is by no means uh, any kind of an absolution of, of any of these actors. I think that they're all uh, uh, just deranged yeah. in, 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 in their barbarity. But we also have to consider, for example, what about uh, images uh, that exist or don't exist of something that did happen in Mosul when American airstrikes uh, took out uh, several hundred civilians there. Or, uh, for example, uh, the recent raid in Yemen or Saudi uh, attacks on Yemen, which have created uh, conditions of, uh, of malnourishment and starvation um, four or five orders of magnitude. Uh, the, the cynical um, exploitation of a well-meaning uh, and empathetic population is, is one of the real casualties of war, if you sure. will. Uh, that there are so many uh, people who are the victims of misery of uh, external forces which are simply pushing and pulling their levers, either acting on their own or through proxies in the Middle East. And I think it's uh, particularly for a historian like myself who studies uh, this region and looks at 100 years ago so much of the template for this misery 
being laid out not on the battlefields uh, in places like Mosul or in uh, Idlib or Raqqa or Khan Shehun, uh, which is where this uh, recent sarin attack happened, uh, but in uh, government buildings and offices in London and Paris and, and Washington uh, a century ago that then drew up the maps and engaged in regime and social engineering, <laughs> which now has affected several generations and countless millions of people in the region. Yeah. Yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number to join the conversation. 313-577-1019. Let's go to Anthony in Pontiac. Anthony, welcome to Detroit today. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? I just had a comment. Um, I just noticed that Trump has completely changed up on uh, his views on the refugees and people in Syria he basically was demonizing everybody and saying that all of them were terrorists. And now all of a sudden that the world has its eyes on this horrible tragedy, he says that they're innocent children and they're all innocent all of a sudden now that everybody's seen a horrible tragedy that's happened to them. And I, I just don't understand that. It's, it's, he's flip-flopped on it. Yeah, yeah th- and, that is a really great point, uh, Anthony. I'm glad you called uh, and made it. Uh, Saeed, I think this goes to the broader context of American involvement in these things, that that uh, we want to be fearful of terrorism. We should be. Uh, we want to assign, though, that label to all kinds of people, regardless of their intention or their behavior. Uh, and then something like this happens, and we want to be seen as the the spot on the planet that that will lead uh, to 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 more peace for these people, but the truth is, the people we see on these videos in these pictures are the very refugees who are fleeing Syria, coming to Europe, trying to come to America. We can't really have it both ways. Exactly, Stephen and Anthony. Thank you for for the comment. Uh, I take it even one uh, step further, Stephen, that the images that we see are actually not of the refugees, but the people who simply don't who even have leave. the ability to leave, yeah, right. uh, which makes it even all the more poignant and, and tragic. And I think this this really then brings home the notion of, of, of what is then American policy. Is American policy more in alignment with the values and the principles that we then promote to the world? Or is there a major fissure between that and what seems to be the case of other factors which which drive American policy, uh, both in the region and, and beyond. Yeah. And that disjuncture between the two creates not only confusion for um, the American viewer who is seeing these images, uh, but also for, uh, for people around the world. I mean, just as I said, um, I just got back from Rome uh, last night and uh, hearing uh, about the United States abroad, and especially in a place like Italy, which was liberated by the United States in 1945, yeah. uh, to hear with both puzzlement, shock, and even anger that what is happening to the United States, what is the domination of the discourse in the United States, the fact that Syria is probably the third biggest story in the American news cycle behind Kendall Jenner and a Pepsi commercial, Mm -hmm. and then uh, the impending nomination of a new Supreme Court justice. Uh, People are uh, noticing this. Uh, The phrase back in the 1960s was, the whole world is watching. It was used as an activist phrase. And that is happening now. Now, I think President Trump uh, realized that the rhetoric that he bore during the campaign 
uh, is completely different once you get into office. Yeah, it's and pretty more, useless as, as a policy-making framework. Exactly. And then also a lot of the intelligence briefing, uh, briefings that he uh, denigrated and perhaps even avoided now has become inescapable. And as he is realizing the complexities of these issues, he's now responding to that along with, I think, uh, perhaps in an optimistic tone, uh, oper- uh, also uh, responding from a very visceral and an emotional response to these images. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Anthony, thanks very much again for the call and uh, for the very poignant insight there. Let's go to Mark in Ferndale. Mark, welcome yeah, hi, to Detroit today. Hi, guys. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I'm prior military. I was never deployed, but I, uh, we did a little, I was in artillery. We did a little bit of training with what the gas will do and everything. And I wonder if the reason this is so disturbing is because it, it makes it look like everybody kind of went to sleep and you can really see what a child looks like instead of, you know, a hundred pound artillery shell demolishing a building. I mean, I don't mean to sound macabre, but the, you could kill a lot more people and a lot more people have been killed, you know, with just conventional high explosives sure, and sure. barrel bombs or whatever. You know, he, Assad's found a way to do it, regardless of how we've tried to restrict his, uh, his weapons. And it kind of reminds me of the reaction to the you know, the atomic bombs in Japan as opposed to the firebombing, which killed more people. Sure. And I understand the revulsion to it. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it is revolting. I mean, when anybody's killed like that, especially children, but really quickly, I just think this will make most of your audience go apoplectic. But whenever I hear uh, people discuss, it reminds me of neocons almost like we need to go possibly (laughs) use the military in order for nation building and to stabilize places. I guess maybe the argument against that is we were the ones potentially that caused it. So yeah. I don't know. Mark, anyway, that is, can... uh, that's a great. I, I'm really glad you called uh, and 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 made that point. That that uh, you know sort of focuses the attention on what is the source of our outrage here? Is it the the means of destruction and death, or is it the death itself, which in other instances with through more conventional means can can be worse. So I, I really appreciate your calling and making that point. Uh, Saeed Khan, I, I, talk about why we treat chemical weapons differently from conventional weapons, why we respond differently uh, when those are used. Uh, talk about uh, uh, nuclear and atomic uh, uh, weaponry. Why do we have those these sort of reactions to those that we don't when somebody uh, you know, drives a truck bomb into into a building. Well, I think the scope and the scale is uh, is definitely uh, a part of it. I mean, what happens in Hiroshima in an instant uh, compared to what happened in, uh, as as Mark rightly said, in in Tokyo with with uh, with the bombings. Uh, I think that uh, that makes it so much more graphic. In the case of chemical weapons, I mean, first of all, it's just egregious that uh, that Assad is uh, is uh, ostensibly. Uh, targeting his own people. Uh, it makes one think that does he really then really see them as his people. Right. But whereas uh, I would offer a conventional bombing uh, takes out people, chemical weapons are much more insidious because it actually kills you from the inside. Yeah. Here you have sarin gas, which is uh, somewhere around the lines of at least two orders of magnitude more toxic than even cyanide. Uh, literally, your own organs are working against you. Uh, this is not uh, this is not murder. This is actually euthanasia, uh, no. in in the sense that you uh, that uh, here's your your own leader who is euthanizing the population, and and that's something that I think is extremely unsettling for people. Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, again, Mark, thank you very much. Uh, great call, great comments. Uh, let's go to Tom in Northwest Detroit. Tom, welcome to Detroit Today. Yeah, good morning to both of you, and mm-hmm. congratulations on your re- recent uh, award. What was oh, it? thank Royco? you. Uh, yeah, the Mike Royko Award. Okay. Thank uh, you. But, you know, to the, to the point, uh, you know, to me, this is nothing but man's inhumanity to man. And I mean, you know, I know, and he will never be president. But number forty-five points a finger back at President Obama, talking about this thing that happened in Syria was his fault. No, and it's not George Bush's fault neither. The bottom line is Assad is an evil person, you know, that would you know unleash gas on his well. Uh, as it was brought up, said something about his people. Mm-hmm. They may, you know, could very well feel that they're not his people. But you know, this thing here is just oh, it is just awful. And I remember seeing that picture of that baby laying on that beach. And I mean, you know, you would think that you know, with something like this, you know, hopefully somebody of sound mind would say. This has got to stop. And then even going back to almost what better than 60, 70 years ago almost with what the Germans did to the Jewish people with that Holocaust. And, you know, when they found graves, mass graves and all of what was there. But, you know, man, this thing here, um, I just pray to God that. You know, somebody or something happens to where, yeah, yeah. Uh, God, I mean, you know, we need, what, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm joking, but I'm somewhat halfway serious. We need to have Gord from the day to earth stood still placed down here on this planet. <laughs> right, right. Tom, thank you right. very much for the call and, and the thoughts. You know, putting Assad in that sort of historical context, I think is sort of important. I mean, this is someone whose behavior over a long period of time does put him in league with other prolific uh, killers uh, in in our history, uh, state state actors who who have used that power to to punish and and torture their people. Well, clearly, um, and I think that uh, he he rightly has uh, earned a, a place in that rogues gallery. At the same time, I think that there's one other level of abstraction by which we need to look at these things, Stephen, and that is. What is the complicity of other countries when it comes to uh, having some of these individuals as useful allies or as proxies to carry out our own policies? Right. Uh, I'm reminded of the fact that under uh, the uh, George W. Bush administration, uh, Assad proved quite useful when it came to CIA renditions and even uh, the administration of, of torture. Let's call it what it really was. Uh, perhaps one of the most notorious cases of this was Mahir Arar, who was a Canadian dual citizen who's coming back through the United States on his way to Canada, where he was then detained. He should have been sent back to Canada, which would have been his right as a, as a Canadian. He was deported to Syria, where he spent about 18 months facing tremendous torture. Uh, now, when he was finally released, uh, he gets back to Canada. The Canadian Parliament issued him a formal apology and, in fact, gave him reparations. Uh, and compensation for it. The United States, if I'm not mistaken, has yet to even acknowledge, uh, let alone give an apology for its complicity in that action. So we really have at these moments um, an awful lot of soul-searching to do, as well as an examination of what has been American policy in helping enable these individuals. Yeah. Uh, Let's take one more call here. Terry in Detroit. Welcome to Detroit today. Hey, how are you? Good. Hey, two-part question. One, 
I wanted to say, let's talk a little bit about who's fighting, um, who's opposing Assad in, in this war. Because there's always at least two sides to a war. We don't talk about the rebels backing down, and we don't talk about their atrocities. Right. And I think both sides have culpability here. The other thing I'd like to guess to talk about is any examples of externally implemented solutions to civil war. I just don't think they work. I think the Mideast is a mess now because it was an externally administered um, solution to how to divide up that part of the world, sure. you know, the United States and Great Britain and others, um, and it hasn't worked. So I don't know why we think an external solution will solve this civil war situation. Yeah, no, Terry, great, great points. Thank you very much uh, for calling in and raising those. Let's let's at least address this this question of who's the good guy in, in Syria. I mean, you, you've got lots of different rebel factions trying to push Assad out. Uh, ISIS is one of them. Uh, those are not friends of ours or friends of the people of Syria. Is there a is there a faction we ought to sort of highlight and, and ally with and say, these are the folks that we ought to get in, into power? Sure. Uh, and thank you for the, for the, the call and the questions, Terry. Uh, to take the second one first, uh, I would say, well, first of all, your question. Uh, the good guys in this are, are the innocent victims, yeah. as, as they always are. Right. Uh, I, I truly believe that it's a pox on all houses, whether it's Assad or the opposition. I, I don't see either of them really having any, any merit uh, whatsoever. The problem now is that because the opposition has become as immoderate as it is, uh, it is not a viable solution to to Assad. And to get to the first point, uh, when it comes to uh, the atrocities committed by Jabhat al-Nusra, by al-Qaeda, uh, al by by ISIS, yes, I mean these are these are completely egregious. The problem, though, when it comes to uh, an external solution being off the table and relying just on an internal solution, is that the it is such an asymmetric balance or, or imbalance of power, if you will, uh, there. So the idea then of just leaving it to the devices of the general populace in Syria uh, seems to make any kind of ceasefire, yeah. let alone a peaceful solution, elusive. Yeah. Okay. Saeed Khan, expert in Middle and Near East history and politics lecturer at Wayne State University, as always. Thanks for being here on Detroit Today. Thanks again, Stephen. All right. Up next, we're going to talk about an event in Detroit that celebrates the art and craft of the letterpress. Stay with us on Detroit Today.